Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kaiju Carnage. I am your host, Kyle the Kaiju Guy. And today, I'm going to be talking about my final Ray Harryhausen film. Uh, not the final Ray Harryhausen themed episode, but my final Ray Harryhausen film that I've been doing for Ray Harryhausen month in celebration of his life and his contributions to cinema and special effects and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, this is the last movie of his that I'm covering for a good while. You know, I'll do another one like one of the Sinbad movies or something like that um, way later on down the road. But um, next, like this coming Wednesday at the time of uh, this recording, will actually be Ray's birthday. And he will be turning 102, I believe. Or he would have been uh, turning 102. And <clears throat> I've invited my friends Kid Kong and Ian back. We're going to watch some Ray Harryhausen um, documentaries and some interviews and all of that. And then we will discuss like what we like about him. Like what our favorite movies of his is and what our favorite creatures of his is. And so that's all going to take place on uh, this coming Wednesday at the time of this recording that will actually be posted on Ray's birthday. But anywho, back to, uh, back to the film at hand. Yes, like I said, this is the final film of his that I'm doing throughout the month. It is on one of the earliest films that I ever saw of his in my life. Um... I've been a fan of this movie about just as long as I've been a fan of King Kong or Godzilla or anything like that. And it was because of this film as well as the last film that I covered, which was Jason and the Argonauts, that really helped push me in, like, put me on a path of loving mythology not just greek mythology but i'm i'm a big fan of like uh i believe i've mentioned it before that i have multiple bookshelves of books that's on different mythologies throughout the world like uh various native american mythologies because i'm a quarter choctaw my grant my grandmother is full-blood choctaw indian so i'm very proud of that heritage and into native american stuff and you know, I'm, I've also, like, Greek mythology, uh, Norse mythology is my favorite type of mythology, and Chinese, Japanese, Korean, um, I've begun here recently dabbling into, like, Australian mythology, um, I've got books on Hawaiian mythology, Egyptian, Persian, like, <laughs> I mean, I've got... I've got a lot of different uh, different books on mythology, and I have read, um, <clears throat> if I have not read them completely, I've read about 80% of them, like, just, you know, because I'm a big reader and all of that. But, anywho, the film in question that I'm talking about today is Ray's final film that he ended up working on, and that is Clash of the Titans. Now, I had covered... The Kraken in a spotlight like a good while back, a number of episodes back. So I'm going to refrain from talking a whole, whole lot about the Kraken and like 
its basis originally in the name being like Norse mythology, but it was based on an entirely different character um, in Greek mythology and, and all of that. I'm going to refrain from all of that because if you guys wanted to listen to that, you could just go listen to uh, the spotlight that I did on the Kraken. But in this episode, I'm going to briefly talk about like the production and a little bit of the casting and all of that. And then I'm going to break down each one of the stop motion creations that Ray Harryhausen did in this film. And uh, yeah, so uh, stick around to the end of the episode. I will announce what my next episode will be next week. I will be returning to form and doing a classic, traditional kaiju film. So if you want to know what I'm going to be doing, just stick around to the end of the episode, and I'll also make some announcements on what I'm going to be doing on my next podcast and, and all of that. But anywho, let's get to Clash of the Titans. Now, how this film came about, uh, there was a screenwriter. His name was Beverly Cross, and he he was a pretty educated guy whenever it came to mythology like he was a student of mythology he had taken like official i don't think he had like a legit degree in mythology but he had taken uh various courses and things like that on mythology and he had always wanted to see the myth of perseus be put on to screen and so he actually approached ray about it and was like you know they had just got done they had done Jason and the Argonauts. They had done a number of Sinbad movies and all of that. So, and Ray had talked about before how he was he was very into the fantasy slash mythology genre of films and all of that. And so, he saw this basically as his opportunity. Like, hey, I can finally get this myth that I've wanted to see on screen and that I've wanted to write a screenplay for. I can make it. I can make it happen. So he pitched it to Ray, and Ray loved the idea. He's like, yes, let's do it. Let, let's make it happen. And so uh, Beverly Cross had already worked uh, with Ray in that he wrote the screenplay for Jason and the Argonauts. And so they decided, okay, we're going to do it. They came up with a, a very you know small premise uh, about what all was going to happen. Some sketches were done by Ray and all of that. And so they come and they pitch it to Columbia Pictures, which Columbia and Ray had worked together a lot in the past with a lot of movies, uh, like the Sinbad movies and things like that. And so they pitch it to Columbia, but there was a, there was a changing of the guard at, uh, Columbia and some, some new individuals came into the company and they, they looked at, what they wanted for Clash of the Titans and was basically like, nope, this this project is going to be too expensive. This project is going to be too big. Uh, we, we just don't feel like messing with it. And so Columbia dropped it. They said, nope, we're not going to touch it. So then they pitched it to Orion Pictures and uh, that that pitch also fell through. And so they finally went to MGM and pitched it to them, and MGM loved the idea, they loved the concept of it and everything, and they're like, yes, let's do it, let's let's make it happen. And so, as, like, things would be going, and they would start bringing people in, like, uh, like, hey, we're looking at casting this guy as this character, and MGM was like, okay, yeah, sure. And they would be like, oh, well, we're gonna need a little bit more money in the budget to cover this and cover that, and MGM would just say, okay, yeah, sure. 
Like, so MGM really, really, like, they had a lot of faith in this movie to where they was just basically like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Yeah, do, just do, do whatever you need. And, um, yeah, so a little bit about the casting. Um, Perseus, the role of Perseus, almost went to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold was a, you know, he was a fairly unknown individual at the time. And there were a number of reasons as to why they decided not to go with Arnold. Uh, one of the main reasons, and, you know, this is sad for Arnold, that uh, he lost a lot of opportunities because of this in his early days. But, I mean, he, he ended up doing all right, I guess. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> he, one of the reasons that they turned him down was because of his voice and his accent. And that Perseus was going to have too many lines of dialogue and was basically like, we don't think Arnold can hack it. We don't think he would be able to alter his voice good enough to basically come across as very convincing Greek. So they went away with it. And uh, that, that was one reason why they turned him down. Another reason that they turned him down was because, you know, everyone knows Arnold was a former bodybuilder. Like, he, he was freaking massive. He was a massive, massive man. And Ray had always pictured, like, Greek heroes to be more athletic and slim. You know, like, somewhat, you know, muscular. But not to the level that Arnold was. I mean, just look at uh, who they got cast to play uh, Hercules in Jason and the Argonauts. I mean, you know, that guy, he's not um, Nigel Green. He's not the most muscular giant of a man that there is. But he seemed athletic. He seemed slightly larger than than average, so he was cast as Hercules. Ray was good with that. To have Arnold come in and just see this massive walking muscle of a man... Like, Ray was just like, nope, that's that's too much. Like, he doesn't look the part for what I'm looking for. So, Arnold ended up not getting it. Um, the vast majority of the cast in this film is British. Like, um, <laughs> except one. Uh, Mr. Burgess Meredith was cast for diversity. Now, when I say diversity, I mean, you know, they were all still pretty much a bunch of white dudes. But I say diversity because Burgess was American and they wanted to have an American actor in the film so that it didn't just seem like a complete 100% British film. And for those of you that don't know who Burgess Meredith is, he is best known uh, for his role as Mick in the Rocky franchise. He's the one that trained Rocky Balboa in Rocky 1, 2, and 3. Uh, which I'm a massive fan of the Rocky franchise. I'll probably be covering some of uh, some or even all of them eventually on my other podcast that I have. But uh, yeah, this this was the first film that they pretty much wanted big names to play um, like the gods and stuff like that. Like they didn't just want you know like they were like okay these are the Greek gods we want some big name guys. And all of that, we think it will help with the box office if we have some big-name actors that are in there. And so a pretty good deal of big-name actors were hired to play the gods. 
And most of the film was shot in England and also shot in Spain. And they intentionally sought out more unusual areas because in show business, you know, a lot of times, and we see this in some movies and all that kind of stuff, like, uh, the names of the films don't really come to the top of my head, but you know, it'll, it'll be a situation like there'll be one movie and it'll be taking place at this, this house, like this nice looking house, like off by the lake or something like that. And then like two years later, another movie comes out and the main characters go to this house that's off by the lake and people go get to looking at it and they're like, Hey, that place looks familiar. It's because it's the same location. Like, you know, in in Hollywood and just making movies in general, whenever they find nice places, they tend to reuse them. Now, they will shoot them in different angles or in different lights. Like in one movie, if it's done during the daytime, another movie, they'll do it at nighttime just so it's not that obvious that they're just using the same location over and over and over again. But um, Ray wanted to avoid that. He was pretty much like, Okay, it's getting to the point to where movies are going to the same locations, they're going to the same canyons, they're going to the same, like, fields and all that kind of stuff. So he wanted to do, like, be in more unusual places and all of that. Um, the temple that they shot in Jason and the Argonauts, where they capture the Harpies, they actually returned to that same location for Clash of the Titans. This is where... Uh, Perseus and his crew fight the Hellhound and then journey further down, like underneath the temple into the lair of Medusa. And so, but other than that, they pretty much really just sought out more unusual places. They wanted these places to be something that had not been seen before by the audience so that they wouldn't instantly recognize and be like, oh, that's the same places from, you know, this movie or... Uh, that looks like the same location that they shot in this other movie. You know, he wanted to avoid that. And so that's why they went to more, like, uh, unusual places than Hollywood shooters normally did. So, now, that's all about, like, the shooting and the casting and all of that kind of stuff that I'm going to talk about. So now let's take a moment to talk about some of the very iconic creatures that Ray came up with for this movie. So, first of all, I'm going to talk about the two-headed dog, the Hellhound. Um, don't really have a whole lot to talk about this one. I couldn't find a whole lot of information about each individual creature that was done. But, um, you know, typically whenever people think of a Greek Hellhound, like, they say it's got three heads. So, why does this one only have two? A very simple explanation for that was Ray straight up said he, he didn't feel like messing with a third head. So, so he just, he's like, nope, I'm only doing two. Which, by the way, a lot of the information that I got for this episode, I have my, my DVD that I have that is called Ray Harryhouse and a Titan of Special Effects. And then just various uh, you, uh, official like interviews and things like that that Ray did of him just like talking to the camera, explaining what he's done and all of that kind of stuff. And then also just various websites and blogs and things like that, that I was able to, to find what I could. So anywho, yeah, the two headed dog, he removed the third head. Um, there was a challenge with the hellhound that they were having in that it was covered in fur naturally. And 
they were beginning to have an issue like that was in the original King Kong. If you watch the original King Kong, you can notice that just about every single movement that Kong makes, you see his fur is constantly changing. It's moving like it's raised here and now, then it's lowered there and all of that kind of stuff. That's because every single time Willis O'Brien would have to put his hands on the model to move it a little bit, it would shift the fur on the model. And then whenever he would take the picture, the fur would be in a different position. Now, you know, that, that probably bothers some people to it's like, oh, the fur is constantly moving. To me, that kind of adds a sense of realism, like... As Kong is moving, his fur is moving, or you could say like, oh, the wind is blowing and all that kind of stuff. And so they didn't want to repeat that issue with um, with the Hellhound. So they had to be very, very careful in only putting their hands in places where the Hellhound, like it wouldn't be picked up on camera. Like if they were, if the shot was going to be taking place on the left side of the Hellhound, they would only put their fi their fingers and stuff like on the very back of it, or they would only hold its legs while they were trying to move it, or they would uh, try to hold it on the right side the best that they could, so that they wouldn't constantly shifting the fur. And so that's all I've got for the Hellhound. Now next up is the Scorpions that were uh, in the film, which the Scorpions pretty much make a return. Kind of, sort of, in a way, not really. In the 2010 remake, there are scorpions, but they don't come about the way that they came about in this film. And the scorpion sequence in the 2010 film is freaking amazing. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. But um, the scorpions in this film um, really couldn't find out anything special about these guys. It was just a straight-up scorpion model that was made. Now, in the... Uh, there's actually a little bit of a nod to the actual myth whenever it comes to these scorpions, because how they come about is Calibos stabs the head of Medusa, and whenever her blood comes out of the bag, her blood is what creates the scorpions. In the actual myths, whenever Perseus cuts off her head, like, uh, Pegasus was born from her head. So... Um, you know, it's a pretty cool little nod that they use the blood of Medusa to create some, some other creatures. And I'll, I've got more to talk about Medusa, uh, later on. So next up is the little character that, uh, you know, most fans either love or hate him. And that is Bubo. Bubo is the little mechanical owl that is in the film. Many, many people find him to be annoying. They did not like him. He was put in strictly for like comedy relief and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people just weren't very thrilled with him. Kind of in the same regard as like in Star Wars uh, with Jar Jar Binks. You know, like if you're, if you're a little kid, like a very little kid, and you're watching episode one, The Phantom Menace, you see Jar Jar, you're going to love him. You know, six, seven years old. You're going to love him. He's funny. He's goofy looking. He's got a weird voice. Ha ha ha. You know, oh, I love Jar Jar and all that kind of stuff. If you're an older fan and you watch Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace and you see Jar Jar and you're going to think that is the most annoying character that's ever existed in the history of Star Wars, which is not true. That would be Reva from um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um... Uh, just real quick, I'm going to go ahead and interject. That has nothing to do with um, a lot of the social unrest that's going on right now. 
um, as far as like the racism and people attacking her and all that. I'm sure she is a wonderful person in real life. I just, I couldn't get behind her character. I, I just couldn't. So that's, that's pretty much my only gripe with uh, her character in Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm also not the biggest fan of Kylo Ren, nor am I the biggest fan of Adam Driver. But again, I'm sure he's a wonderful person in real life, and I would, I'd be one of the first ones to be in line to shake his hand, get a picture with him, and all that. And the same goes for the actress that played Reva. But uh, yeah, anywho, all of that aside, uh, yeah. Older fans would say that Jar Jar is absolutely annoying. And that was pretty much the effect that happened here with Ray Harryhausen. Because Ray had openly talked about that he liked getting, you know, younger fans would be reaching out to him saying that they really liked this monster or they really liked that monster. So he, he knew that he had a fan base for younger fans and all of that. And I'm not saying that's 100% the reason that Bubo was uh, added into this film, but I'm sure that's part of the reason. And the younger audiences tend to really, really like Bubo. The older audiences, not so much. And another thing that was got, it was a tad bit of controversy uh, surrounding Bubo was many, many people considered him to be a ripoff of R2-D2. Because he was the small little sidekick, mechanical sidekick, like communicates primarily with beeps and bops and be -doo -be -doo, you know, and all that kind of stuff and everything. And so a lot of people thought that Bubo was created for the sole purpose of trying to capitalize on the success of Star Wars that came out a few years earlier with uh, R2-D2. Though... Uh, if you if you hear a lot of fans talk, you know they'll sit there and be like, "Oh, that's 100% what happened. It was a ripoff of R2D2 and all that." I'm not saying I completely 100% believe anything that a creator says, but Ray Harryhausen himself said that he had created the idea for Bubo before Star Wars, before Star Wars had come out, and I can believe that. And the only reason I say that I can believe that is because if you look at the history of Ray and a lot of the other works that he came up with that he wasn't able to do or anything, he had dozens upon dozens upon dozens of ideas that he wanted to bring to screen, but he just never did. Same thing with Willis O'Brien. So to me, it's really not that much of a stretch to find out that he had created this little small mechanical owl character prior to uh, Star Wars coming out just a few years before this film. So anyway, that's Bubo. And also Bubo makes a cameo appearance in the 2010 remake film. Um, Perseus just kind of picks him up and was like, what's this? And they're like, ah, just leave that there. You know, and so that, and that was it. That was the only uh, time that Bubo shows up in the uh, 2010 remake. So the next creature that we're going for is the Pegasus. A lot of people love the Pegasus from this film. Um, a lot of people just love Pegasus from mythology in general. And Pegasus ended up getting a lot of fans from the Disney cartoon of Hercules. Like, you know, that really helped the mythological character of Pegasus get a, uh, a good deal of fans and all of that. But this film really like kickstarted that and all and and everything because um 
Ray had seen Pegasus in a few other films and things like that, and he always felt that the wings of the Pegasus was too small. He's like, how are you going to have this big hulking man like sitting on top of this horse and its wings are like three foot long? And he's like, it just doesn't seem realistic. So he wanted to bring Pegasus in and give it much larger wings to make it seem like it actually could take flight and all that and support the weight of a human. And so that's what he ended up doing. Now, one of the main things that stands out about Pegasus is that whenever people watch this movie is that whenever he's flying, his legs are kind of galloping, like he's running through the air or something like that. That was done solely because Ray said, I don't want to be animating the Pegasus and having him fly and then just having his legs dangle there motionless. So he said it, it just didn't seem right. It didn't seem unnatural. I mean, it didn't seem natural. So he wanted to have the legs moving like as a gallop just to make a little bit more activity and make it seem a little bit more believable that a horse was flying. And so that's what ended up happening there. Um, they had to use certain lightings and things like that to be able to hide the wires whenever they would be uh, shooting the scenes of Pegasus flying and all of that kind of stuff, which was very, very difficult, according to the DVD Ray Harryhausen, A Titan of Special Effects. Um, there were instances where they would spend hours upon hours just trying to get the lighting right, and they would do things with Pegasus for about five hours or so and get maybe three or four seconds of actual usable footage. So, you know, <laughs> imagine that being your job. But, um, anywho, so I also feel like I need to point out that this was the first film that Ray Harryhausen actually needed to reach out and get help animating one of his films. He was notorious for always wanting to do it on his own, for doing it by himself and all of that, but the film fell behind schedule. There were so many different little characters that needed to be animated and all of that kind of stuff. He just, uh, he just needed help. He needed assistance. And so for all sequences, or most sequences with Bubo the Owl, he reached out to Stephen Archer to animate those, and... I was a big dummy and didn't write down the name of the animator that helped with uh, Pegasus. But yeah, he reached out to another animator to help with about 85 to 90% of the animations dealing with Pegasus. So that he just was not helming it all by himself. But most of everything else he did, he did by himself. Now... One of the more famous uh, models that were used in this movie was the character of Calibos. Now, Calibos originally was going to be 100% stop-motion animation, and he was going to have no lines of dialogue. But because of like the movie and how the story plays out and the character of Calibos and what all he does and his reasons for his motivation and all that kind of stuff. They figured that he absolutely needed dialogue for explanatory reasons so that he could actually say like what, you know, it wouldn't be explained away in like, 
well, why is that character the way he is? And then this, like, you know, this other character is like, it was told that this is what happened to, you know, they wanted to avoid that. So they actually gave him some dialogue, but because they actually gave him some dialogue, now it was going to be difficult to animate his mouth <laughs> like whenever he would be talking and all of that. So they actually hired an actor and this character was played like half with stop motion and half with live action. It was played by Neil McCarthy and the makeup and acting that this guy does for the role of Calibos is just, it's amazing. It's one of the best roles I've ever seen uh, in, in the history of movie making as far as I'm concerned. So anytime there was like close-ups and lines of dialogue or whatever, Neil McCarthy would shoot his scenes doing the dialogue and like seeing the facial expressions and him interacting with other, uh, like human characters in conversation and stuff like that. That's whenever they would actually use live action footage, but whenever he would be interacting or if there was a fight scene, like there was a pretty extensive fight scene with him and Perseus in the swamp. Um, you know, that was all done with stop motion, uh, for Calibos anyway. And then whenever he's trying to capture the Pegasus, his death, uh, you know, like a lot of the action scenes were done with, uh, the stop motion and it ended up looking pretty awesome. Now let's talk about what is probably the most famous creation that was done for this film. Like, because nine times out of 10, you think clash of the Titans the first thing that pops up in your head is Medusa. And I love Medusa. Um, not just this film, but also just in mythology. I believe that Medusa is a very misunderstood character. She is one of Greek mythology's most tragic characters. She did nothing wrong. And she was punished for it, and that's how she became a Gorgon. Like, she was uh, just a very, you know watered down version of the myth was that she was a very beautiful girl caught the eye of Poseidon, the God of the seas. He, uh, rapes, uh, Medusa in the temple of Aphrodite, I believe. And the goddess got upset at Medusa because that happened in her temple. And so, punished her by turning her into a Gorgon and basically making it to where if you ever look at another man, you're going to turn him into stone. Now, how is that fair? Like how, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how, like there's, she did nothing wrong. Like it's literally like one of the earliest examples of victim blaming. Like, oh, you, you, you were beautiful. You were hot caught the eye of Poseidon, he raped you. It's not his fault for doing that to you. It's your fault for, for, for looking the way that you look. And so she was punished for it and turned into the monster that we all know and love. And so a lot of times, you know, yes, people are like, oh, Medusa's a villain, Medusa's a bad guy. You know, I, I don't blame her. I really don't. I don't blame her for getting to the point that, uh, that, you know, why she was doing the things that she was doing. But anywho, um, so Medusa. Now, Ray had seen some other films with Medusa in them. 
and they would just simply take some rubber snakes and put them on top of her head. It was played by a live-action actress, and she was usually a very beautiful actress. And he didn't like that. He didn't like... He's like, this doesn't really seem like what the character of Medusa would be like. So he ended up making her very demonic, like in the face, decided to go with a much more like reptilian body, like over her entire body. And that's, you know, basically what he went with. And um, she doesn't wear like any clothing, hardly, because he said he didn't feel like animating clothing on her. Because everything else was going to be so much more difficult, you know, with her tail and the individual snakes on her head. He's like, I'm just going to take one more thing out of the out of the mix, which is clothes. And he was just going to put scales over her body and all of that kind of stuff. And so that's what he ended up going with. Now, as far as the head, the snakes on her head, she had 12 individual snakes. And each one of them were animated individually. So he was animating Medusa moving and writhing around. He was animating her tail, flipping around the way that it was. And he was also animating 12 individual snakes that was on her head. Like, it, he's, he's a beast. He's an absolute beast for being able to animate Medusa the way that he did. And he gave her a rattlesnake tail simply for suspense and fear because everybody knows that rattle. You know, I don't care if you're watching a movie or a cartoon or anything like that. You hear that distinctive rattling sound, you know that there's a rattlesnake nearby. like, And it's terrifying because a rattlesnake is very, very venomous. And so he gave her a rattlesnake tail just to make it a little bit more like, oh God, you know, like <laughs> whenever you hear that tail going off, like there she is, here she comes, you know, to add suspense and all of that kind of stuff. And... The suspense was done very, very well. Like I said, whenever I first watched this movie, I was very young, uh, five, six years old, around the time that I saw King Kong and King Kong versus Godzilla and all of that. And I had a bad habit because I would watch these movies in hotel rooms whenever we would be flipping through channels. Just whenever we would come across something, no matter where it was in the film, we'd be like, okay, let's check that out. That looks pretty nice. And the first initial time that I saw this was right before the Medusa scene. And so it gets turned on and I'm sitting there watching this movie and I see Medusa. I still have the memories of me sitting at the end of the bed in the hotel room and seeing Medusa come out very slowly for the first time, watching her crawl around on the ground and all that kind of stuff. Like it was, it was very surreal for me. I was never afraid but I was extremely fascinated. Like I was, I was hooked on the Medusa scene and I will always tell people that the Medusa scene is one of my most memorable movie scenes that I've ever seen because it's just, it's amazing the way that he pulled it off. And I don't know about the, the truth of this because I just saw this in the, the trivia section of IMDb, but, um, Originally, they wanted him to just simply cut Medusa's head off with, um, with his shield, with Perseus's shield, and the actor didn't like that. He didn't like uh, doing it with the shield and all of that, and so he actually locked himself in his trailer and wouldn't come out until 
things were changed accordingly, and eventually things were changed accordingly to where he cut off her head with his sword and not just through throwing his shield at her. Again, I do not know how true that is. Like I said, just saw it in the trivia section of IMDb. Take that with a grain of salt. Now, for the biggest and largest uh, model that's in the film and possibly the largest model that Ray ever created, and that is the Kraken. So, like I said, I'm not going to talk a whole lot of detail about the Kraken and its origins with the myth and all of that kind of stuff because I covered all of that with the spotlight. But the reason that he decided to go with the look for the Kraken that he did was because he felt that dragons had kind of been overused in films. He himself had already used a dragon in The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, so he wanted to come up with something new. And so he came up with... This very big, like, sea creature-looking thing. He gave it four arms. He made the arms move as if they were tentacles because it's supposed to be a sea beast and all of that. So he didn't really think, you know, it would be slender. It would be able to to move very, very fluidly and all of that kind of stuff, you know. And so he made the arms to where, like, you know, it was more like an octopus. That's pretty much what he designed it for. And there were multiple figures for the Kraken that were made for this film. Now, there was one that was done that was complete. And it was about three feet long altogether and probably about a foot, foot and a half tall. And that's the one that he would mainly do a lot of the animations for whenever you would see, like, its full body or uh, most of its body or something like that. That's the one that he would use. Then he made a massive one for that was probably like three three feet tall or something like that and he used it for close-ups for whenever the camera was right there on its face he did that so that you could see the detail in its face and all of that kind of stuff and so that's what he ended up doing there and then there was one more that was done for the underwater scenes and it was about 15 feet long because of the tail and you know everything like that and yeah so it was it was it was a monster so there we go. All right, guys, that pretty much does it for Clash of the Titans, Ray Harryhausen's final film. So the reason that Ray decided to pretty much walk away from filmmaking after Clash of the Titans was because it was just getting to where CGI was becoming much too common of a thing. And, you know, Stop motion was very much beginning to look like old school or why are you using stop motion and stuff like that whenever we can do computer generated images now. And the audiences were getting to where they were like, you know, mainly due to films like Star Wars. They were getting to the point to where they really liked, they wanted to have like explosions and action like all the time and all of that kind of stuff. And Ray was basically like, I can't, I can't put an explosion every five minutes in a Greek movie or a fantasy movie. And so he decided it, it was pretty much time for him to walk away. So yeah, that pretty much does it for Clash of the Titans, guys. Um, this Wednesday, I've got one more final episode I'm going to do. I already explained it at the beginning. Me, Kid Kong, and Ian are going to talk about the career of Ray Harryhausen, and it will be posted on Ray's birthday. And that will be that will be it for Ray Harryhausen month. Um, I very, very, very much appreciate 
those of you that stuck around while I'm doing Ray Harryhausen month because I'm a big Ray Harryhausen fan. I believe that Ray needs to get all the props that he deserves because movie making would not be the way that it is without him. He literally is like the father of special effects. And, you know, I've noticed that my listeners, that my listens for the episodes have have dwindled down a pretty good bit because I'm doing Ray Harryhausen month. And I completely get it. I understand. Whenever people signed up for this podcast, you know, they want it to... They wanted to listen to me talk about kaiju films, Godzilla, King Kong, and stuff like that. And they, you know, whenever I announced that I was going to be doing Ray Harryhausen Month, many of them were just like, no, this isn't for me. Uh, that's not what I signed up for. And so they 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 left. They left the podcast. And, um, you know, so I get it. I, I do. I get it. But seriously, thank you to those for sticking around. I very, very much appreciate it. Um Next Saturday, at the time of this recording, a week from today, I'm returning to form, and I'm going to be talking about a big film, a very popular film, a very famous film in the Godzilla franchise that comes from the Heisei era. Personally, my favorite film of the Heisei era, I will be talking about Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. I love Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. It's one of the first Heisei-era films that I ever saw. It was either that one or Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. That was the first uh, Heisei-era Godzilla film that I ever saw. But yeah, I will be talking about Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Can't wait to jump into that one and talk about the production and the return of King Ghidorah. At that point in time in Godzilla history, he had not been seen since... You know, like it had been a good deal many years <laughs> since uh, Ghidorah had returned. They retconned his his origin in this film and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah of the Heisei era that was made in the early 90s. Can't wait to uh, jump back into form and start talking about regular kaiju films again and all of that kind of stuff. Um, pay attention to my YouTube. I'm going to start, I've got like six videos recorded that I need to, uh, to edit and post on there. I've already put one on there. That was a simultaneous recording that I did with, um, like I recorded my, the weekly Kaiju Havoc and also recorded it on YouTube and just to see how that goes. And I liked how it went. So I think I'm going to start doing that, uh, doing it that way from now on. So on Wednesdays, whenever I do the weekly Kaiju Havoc, I will simultaneously be recording it for YouTube. So, uh, all right, guys, again, I appreciate it. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for showing respect for Ray Harryhausen, thank you for showing me patience while I did an entire month of films that has nothing to do with traditional kaiju films. I very, very much appreciate it, but as I said, next week I'm returning to form, going back with uh, Godzilla. After that, probably do like a Gamera film, maybe a Kong film or something like that. It's time It's time to get back to business and talking about kaiju and all of that. Now, later on today, at the time of this recording, I am going to the movie theater to watch Jurassic World Dominion. And 
I'm doing that because, well, quite frankly, I just want to see the movie. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty hyped for it. But also because I'm going to do a review of it on my other podcast that I have, uh, Cal the Kaiju Guy watches a movie. So I'm going to be doing a review on that, and then after that, I'm going to do all three of the Jurassic World movies in my usual method that I do, talking about production and casting and all of that kind of stuff. So it's about to be a very dinosaur-themed uh, next couple of weeks on uh, Cal the Kaiju Guy watches a movie. And I'm sorry that it's like it's getting to the point to where I'm doing an episode every other week as opposed to every week. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into it and tell you guys like I've told you a thousand times before. Things have been pretty rough at work, and uh, you know I've been working longer hours, getting home later, and all of that. And so there there are some, certain things of my hobbies and all of that that's just beginning to suffer. But um, I'm at least trying to get one out every other week as opposed to every week. But tomorrow. You know, check out Cal the Kaiju Guy watches a movie for my official review of Jurassic World Dominion. I'm letting you know now, there will be spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, I suggest you avoid that episode for a little while. So, alrighty guys, again, thank y'all. Y'all are the best. Tune in this Wednesday to listen to me, Kid Kong, and Ian discuss... Uh, the contributions of Ray Harryhausen, and then that will bring Ray Harryhausen month to a close. Tune in next week for Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Be sure to like me on all of my social medias on Facebook, Godzilla, I mean, uh, Kaiju Carnage, a Godzilla slash King Kong podcast. I also have a Godzilla Ultima fan page on Facebook, and then on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, I am Cal the Kaiju Guy. Again, Thank y'all very much. Oh, one last thing. I did say that uh, Robert chose his film to be Tombstone. I will be doing that film as a Kaiju Carnage Presents on the Kaiju Carnage podcast just because more people listen to this one than they do um, uh, Cal the Kaiju Guy watches a movie. So that's probably a, a couple of weeks away, Robert, just because, you know, I've done a whole month of not kaiju-related films. I want to, like, help bring some of the audience back and get them back into the swing of things of listening to uh, me talk about traditional kaiju films. And then I'll do a Kaiju Carnage Presents on Tombstone. And I haven't forgotten about you. I really haven't. Your Amazon gift card will be on the way very, very soon. So, all right, guys, again, thank y'all. Y'all are the best. Love each and every one of you. Thanks for all the love and support. We will catch y'all next time. This is Cal the Kaiju Guy, signing out.